Genesis chapter 3, and uh, let's begin reading in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He, the serpent, said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat anything from the tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent, some say, hissed to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed together fig leaves and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden. Just this to me is one of the most precious statements in the word of God. He was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Obviously coming to engage with them in fellowship. However, not unaware of what has happened. But it is fascinating to think what life was like before the evil one interfered. Text says... They hid from the Lord God, which I think is probably one of the saddest statements in the Word of God, among the trees of the garden. Last week, we began a short three-part series on our adversary, the devil. This thought jumped into my mind this morning. Even as I was standing up here, I said, you know, so we spend three weeks focusing on the evil one, but I, I, I hope that you understand Okay, that our purpose in looking at the evil one is to encourage us and challenge us and convince us of our need to look at Christ. Okay, in other words, when we see the strength of the opposition that we face, when we understand clearly how active and diligent and real he is, my prayer is this, that we as a church, we as individuals, you as young people in our church family, will realize that you are not... Adequate for these things, for this contest, for this battle. And that as a result of looking at him, you will in your heart say, Christ, I flee to you. My hope is in you alone to find victory in this battle that I find myself engaged in on a daily basis. Last week we laid out what we spoke of as a resume of, sa resume of Satan saying this. Basically from 1 Peter 5 and verse 8. He is real. He is our committed opponent. He is active, tireless, and vigilant with this conclusion. Satan, because of his capabilities and capacities, is to be respected. He is not to be feared. Okay, he is to be respected. It is fully appropriate for a Christian to say, I have respect for the capacities that the evil one has in my life. I realize that he is real, that he is vigilant, that he is tireless in his work among us. But, Christians do not need to lock the door of their spiritual life and sit in a corner waiting for Christ to come. In the power of Christ, we should, on a daily basis, arm ourselves, prepare ourselves for the nature of Christian living, which the Bible describes as a war. And then with confidence, not in our flesh, not in the decision that we made in the morning, 
but in the power of Christ, we should exit the door of our home or go into our daily life saying, Lord, today I am going to live for you. I know I have an opponent and I am trusting you to sustain me as I seek to advance your cause in his territory. So last week we looked at his resume and this call to trust him, to trust the Savior, not to fear, but to respect the evil one. This morning I want to look at his MO. His MO. When I say MO, what do you think I mean? Okay, modus operandi, which is the Latin term for his mode of operation. Okay, anybody that works in an investigative field in the criminal realm knows that in order to capture and overcome a criminal, you need to understand their mode of operation. That means this, their criminal characteristics, patterns, and style. And once you uncover that pattern, those characteristics and style, you can corner that person and render them ineffective by locking them up in jail. In the physical realm, or in general, it is used to describe someone's habits, their manner of working, their method of operating. It's how people function. All of us have habits in our life, okay? Ways that we live. They are our mode of, operan- uh, mode of operation, our modus operandi. Satan has a clear modus operandi. Once you understand his mode of operation, he will become for you, in many ways, predictable. Okay, it is important that you understand how he operates so that his attacks against your life become more predictable and so that you will know that I must defend myself in these specific areas. Here's what I believe also. I believe that his mode of operation with each believer is different. How he comes and how he attacks, the strength of his assaults, they are tailor-fit to various kinds of Christians. This is an interesting thought. He knows you fairly well. He and his minions understand what makes you tick, where you are weak. And he will make the most of and exploit every opportunity that you give him. When you read this text in Genesis chapter 3 that I read to you, you find out something that I think is, is fascinating. I just want to lay out the three basic thoughts. I know this is a familiar text, but I just want to lay out three basic thoughts that, that emerge from this text with one observation. Now the serpent was more crafty, more clever, and some will even drift into the idea of the word attractive than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He is, in his operation, attractive. He doesn't make himself ugly. He is not red with a pointed tail and a pitchfork in his hand. It's not how he came to Eve. Now it's fascinating. Pre-fall... Snakes were not something that was, were fearful, okay? I found a dead snake in my driveway this week, and because I'm a loving father, I decided I would lay it in the flower pot beside the door as an encouragement to my wife and kids, okay? <laughs> now, here's what I know, okay? I did not kill the snake. I found it dead in my driveway, okay? And I was happy that I found it dead. Actually, we all thought it was, I thought the girls would jump. They're like, it's fake. I'm like, okay, I lose. <laughs> all right, this snake in Genesis is not fake. And early on, before the fall, he was attractive. Today, when we think of a serpent, what do we think? If a serpent started talking to you, what would you do? All right, you'd say, I'd run. Well, in other words, I wouldn't even hear a word he said because when I see him, I'm out of there. Okay, but Eve, in this setting, engages in a discussion with Satan who has taken on this form that is clever and attractive. There is something appealing about the tactics of the evil one. He is very crafty. 
He knows how to take people down. He effectively hunts his prey and seeks to bring destruction. I want you to notice what he does in this passage of Scripture. The first thing he does, he comes to the woman, engages her in a conversation and says, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Okay, now, what is he doing? Okay, and I'll just give you this very simple thought. I believe that Satan is establishing doubt about the goodness of God. They just raise in someone's mind this suspicion about the character, trustworthiness, reliability, and kindness of God. I believe that's the first thing he does. Just, I mean, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree of the garden? Establish doubt about God's goodness by distorting and exaggerating, however subtly, the commands of God. Because God hadn't said, you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden. What he had actually said is, you can eat from all of the trees in the garden. Except one. And you can start to see the effect of this subtle doubt on Eve. About the tree that he had prohibited, she says, He said, you must not eat from the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, which is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you must not touch it. And you find out that when you go back to chapter 2, or you will die. But here's what happens. God didn't say, don't touch it, which I think would be clearly implied, but it's not what he said. And when Eve responds to this temptation from the evil one, this attraction to the tree, she, in a sense, ups the ante, and I think the second kind of effect of his work here is that she he establishes doubt about the goodness of god verse four satan's response okay if you eat of it verse three you will die and then you can just you can anticipate that satan as she finished that sentence was right there oh come on you won't surely die if you partake of this tree you're not going to experience an immediate sudden death what happens here? I think what happens here is this. Satan establishes doubt about the holiness and justice of God. And he does it by sneering at the demands and directives of God. The standards of God. The established law of God. Folks, can I ask you something? Do you ever hear people in the world you live in sneer at the moral boundaries that God has established in this word? They not only sneer at it, they make light of it and entertainment out of it. Okay, that is the world that you and I live in. It is not a world unlike what Eve faced in this text. Raised out about the goodness of God and then raised suspicions about the justice of God. Which means this, will there really be consequences to sinful choices? Is it really that bad to know what God says and not do it? Is God ignoring behavior serious? Okay, that's the question that starts to emerge. He's saying, if you ignore God, do you think that things will really go that bad? Does that sound familiar? And I think there's also something else. She, she's caused to think about God in terms of his restrictiveness. Because as the evil one responds, he says this. He says, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. He has a list of reasons for why 
disobeying God will actually produce benefit and joy and satisfaction and happiness. And isn't that the way that it always is with the evil one? He always makes the good look bad and the bad look good. And it is exactly what he does in this text. Establish doubts about God's goodness. Establish doubt about his holiness. And, and here's, here's a simple, simple way to say it. Does sin have consequences? Does sin have consequences? You know what most people believe? They believe that they can contain the effects of sin in their life. That though it may be present in their choices, it will not necessarily affect them. The results or the presence of it can somehow be contained, neatly packaged in one segment of one's life. Folks, if Satan wants you to believe anything, that's what he wants you to believe. That you can hide sin in your life and that its consequences will not be that bad. Because God is not quite that holy and just. And I think he does this. He caused sin, that which is ugly and devastating, to become attractive. Right? Because he says, no, no, no. You won't die. No, instead, you're going to go, you're not going down a notch, you're going up a notch. In doing this, you will find a degree of enlightenment and a degree of joy. You'll know what God knows. Establish doubt about God's goodness and holiness and you will always find sin to become attractive when you think that God is holding out on you that he is withholding something from you that could benefit you that would give you joy that would give you pleasure the evil one is starting to bait the hook in front of you his aim is to cause you to fall in light of this case study I want to just make two observations I want to encourage you to know his mode of operation his mode of operation primarily is this. It is misinformation. Okay, his mode of operation primarily is misinformation. And then the second thing I want to look at with you is this. The importance of knowing the truth about the evil one from God's word. Okay, so first, let's look at his MO. Okay, his MO is he is the father of lies. I want you to turn to John chapter 8 and verse 44. John chapter 8 and verse 44. And I'm going to have you turn to one other passage of Scripture. So if you would turn first to John chapter 8 and verse 44. Okay? Know his mode of operation. His mode of operation is always at some level misinformation. Because, and if you're taking the notes down, you can write these two things in. Because he is a deceiver and because he is a master teacher or communicator. Okay, his mode of operation is misinformation. In that misinformation, he is seeking to deceive and to teach. John 8, 44 says this. It says, he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he speaks lies, he speaks, I love the way the NIV puts this, he speaks his native language, for he is a father, or he is a liar, and the father of liars. Okay, what is he promoting? He's promoting misinformation about the goodness and justice of God. And he is promoting misinformation that says, when you follow God's absolute standards, you are missing out on things that you could otherwise enjoy. He seeks to make sin attractive. So he is a deceiver. That is, he twists things to get you to do things that dishonor God. But here's the truth that struck me a few weeks ago in our men's Bible study. 
First Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1. Just to ask you to turn there, and it's the last text I'll ask you to turn to this morning. First Timothy 4 and verse 1. I think it's very, very important that you see this. His MO is misinformation. He is a deceiving teacher. First Timothy 4 and verse 1 <clears throat> says this. It says the, the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, clearly, what I want you to notice, if, if you underline in your Bible, circle the word Spirit and Spirits. Okay, one with a small s, one with a large s. Okay, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, clearly says in the latter times, some will abandon the faith following deceiving spirits. Okay, that is, there, there is the Spirit of God and there is Satan and his minions. Okay, Satan and his minions, his helpers, his accomplices, are doing something in our world. And what they are doing, to me, is astonishing. My, 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 my view of Satan was simply this, okay? He seeks to tempt us to do wrong. He seduces us to do evil. That's his main mode of operation. But when I read this passage of Scripture, I find that his mode of operation is somewhat different. And when I look back to Genesis chapter 3, what is he doing? He's seeking to teach truth that is in conflict with what has already been revealed by God. And in teaching that truth, what does he want to do? He wants to ensnare people in their sin and in their lostness. 1 Timothy 4.1 says, The Spirit clearly says in the latter times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits. And this next phrase is the one that caught me. And things taught by demons. Okay? Now think about that. And think about the world that you live in. In terms of morality, just that category alone. Okay? I mean, it is one thing to say that Satan is seeking to trip you up. It is another thing to say he is seeking to reprogram your way of thinking. He is seeking to bring an assault on the absolutes that are established in God's Word. It is exactly what he does in Genesis chapter 3. Now, if you are up to date a little bit philosophically on what it's like in America, you know that America is a country that practices something called tolerance, relativism, or pluralism. Okay, what it basically seeks to do is say that there are a number of truths out there and all of those truths at some level are viable. Particularly in the area of sexuality, is that being promoted? Particularly in the area of entertainment, is that being promoted? Okay, and it, truthfully, in many, many other areas. There's a, a, a seminary in California, I read this a few weeks ago, an article came out on the internet basically demonstrating and showing that there is a, a, a seminary, I think it's Claremont College in California, if I remember correctly, that is establishing a multi-faith branch in their Christian seminary. Okay, now here's what that means. It means they're going to teach Hinduism, they're going to teach Islam, and they're going to teach Christianity as if all of them, you read the article, as if all of them are equally valid perspectives. Okay, now, here's the sad thing. For many of us, that's not shocking. Because we don't understand what that means. Okay, what that alleges, what that means is that all of these perspectives are equally valid perspectives. And when that happens, there is no strong call from truth. That same thing is happening in the, in the context of morality in the American culture, in the education system in America. 
Doctrines taught by demons. I'm going to think about that. Doctrines taught by demons. What would they be? I think they would be things exactly like what I find in Genesis chapter 3. Subtle attacks on the sovereignty of God. Subtle attacks on the justice of God. They Are there really? Come on. There are no consequences. And if you can eliminate the consequences of behavior, all behavior becomes tolerable and acceptable. That's what happened in the sexual revolution when we bought a doctrine of the evil one that you can have free expressions of sexuality with other people, same sex or other sex, but you will not experience consequences. Folks, I want to tell you something. That is a lie that the evil one is promoting. It is one of the doctrines of the evil one. And there are so many others that I could point to. He has duped our culture into thinking that there are no absolute truths, there is no absolute justice, and that if you're not enjoying sin, you're the fool. Okay, that's the lie from the evil one. His mode of operation is that he is a, he's not only a deceiver, he is a master teacher. And I think this text, this text jumped out to me a few weeks ago in a way that it just caught me off guard. Satan is teaching. God is teaching. Satan is promoting an alternative reality. God is speaking his word into the hearts of believers and wants us to cling to it and to live by it because the consequences of sin are in fact unavoidable. And our adversary wants to pull us in this place of unhappiness and a lack of joy because that steals glory from God. And that, if you want to know what his aim is, his aim is to steal glory from God through your life. He wants you to think that your life is such a wreck that God could not use you. That's what he wants you to believe. And if you're seeking to walk in righteousness, he wants you to believe that departures from the path of righteousness are of minor consequence. Can I list some of the lies that we believe today? Just, I'll give you four. If you want to write some of these down, you can feel free to do that. What are some of the lies that we believe today? I think one is this. <clears throat> Satan is not an active threat today. That is, he is not to be taken seriously by intellectually sophisticated people. Now, what is the lie of the evil one? Everything can be explained in natural terms. Okay, there is no God. Everything you see, everything you experience can be explained in natural terms. Here's my response to that. Good luck. Good luck. If you think that everything you see in your world can merely be explained in natural terms, I believe in many ways you are blind. And the evil one is gaining a stronghold in your life. You know what the evil wants you to think? He wants you to think that there is simply a natural realm so that he can wreak havoc in the unseen realm. He has created an alternate reality where there is no devil, there is no God, but he rules. Okay, that is the alternate reality that he has created. We speak back to that from Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. Here's what Paul said. Paul said, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, meaning the real, the real battle that the apostle Paul faced was not the opponents that we see beating him at Lystra, throwing stones at him and leaving him for dead. He says, they're not my real opponents. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realm. What is he saying? The world you live in has two spheres of reality. One is natural, created by God, and fallen. One is spiritual, where the Spirit of God is waging a war for your soul but not unopposed. Okay, Paul understood 
that there was a serious battle around him. It's why in verse 16 he says this, in addition to everything you're doing and putting on this uh, idea of armor for spiritual battle, he says, take up the shield of faith because with it you will be able to extinguish the flying missiles of the evil one. Why would Paul say that if there was not a reality that he was facing on a daily basis? Okay, what Satan wants you to believe is that you live a life that is relatively unopposed. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 19 says this. It says the whole world lies under the influence of the evil one. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen is a fascinating verse that helps you to understand uh, the, the, the way that the evil one operates. It says, even Satan has transformed himself into an angel of light. You know what he wants to do? He wants to appear good. He wants to appear positive when he is devastatingly evil and destructive in his activity. I think the way that I could best illustrate Satan is this. He is like a terrorist who lives among us, but often undetected. If you think about his mode of operation, if you think about his presence, often guarded, shielded, hidden, behind lies and behind being a master teacher while being a deceiver. He is incredibly and fervently active. And he wants you to believe that he does not exist. The result is that we tend to live lives that are relatively unprepared for the assaults of the evil one. Another lie that Satan, I believe, promotes, and I think he does it in Genesis chapter 3, is this. Life is about me. Life is about me. Life is about my happiness. Life is about my joy and my satisfaction. Fascinating to me, when you go back to Genesis chapter 3, the, the pulling of the hook that gets Eve on board with his plan is that he says to her, when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When you do this, everything will be on the up and up. Life will begin to move forward, not backwards. You will experience progress. A devastating truth that he promotes. Eve partakes because she believes, I think, at some level, God is withholding something from her that she needs in order to be happy. God is, therefore, being restrictive or at some level, dishonest. I think of Peter, Matthew chapter 16. Jesus is moving towards the cross to pay the price for his sin. Jesus announces this to the disciples. Peter steps in front of Christ and what does he say? He says, over my dead body. Jesus responds to Peter in a way that is devastating and strong. Why? Okay, what is Peter thinking? The Savior that he has been following, that he is devoted to, is now going to go to the cross? Peter's like, no. Why? What did Peter want from Jesus? You know what Peter wanted from Jesus? This is just, as you you move along early on through the the center of his, his public ministry, you know what Peter wanted? Peter wanted freedom from Roman oppression. Peter was still fundamentally motivated by temporal concerns. He was concerned about the joy that he would experience in his own life if Rome was finally overthrown. Why? He was a zealot. You can go back and look at the history of him in the Gospels. 
What he wanted more than anything was freedom from Rome. Not realizing that what he needed more than anything was freedom from his sin. And it's why then Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, get behind me. And what does he say next? Satan. Okay, why? He goes on, and I think unpacks it fairly clearly. He says, Peter, because you have set your mind on the things that be of this life, not the things that are of eternity. You've set your mind on temporal things, Peter. That's what Satan wants you to look at. Isn't that exactly what Eve did in the garden? He got her to look at the temporal realm, promised her benefits in the temporal realm. She forgot about her relationship with God, abandoned that relationship, drifted into sin, thinking that she would be happy. And yet we know the result, right? They partake of the fruit. God comes in the cool of the day. And what do they have to do? They hide themselves. Why? Because what Satan promised had things hidden inside of it. He smuggled into the promised blessing distortion and deceit and hurt and anger and bitterness and brokenness and distance from God. Okay? When you think that life is all about you, you are a prime target for the evil one. When your happiness, your joy, your satisfaction is the driving force of your life, you are in a very dangerous place. We become easy targets when we live like this, and I believe this with all my heart, when my happiness is the fundamental motivating issue in my life, I can justify just about anything in my life. Okay, when God is not the primary purpose of your life, I guarantee you this, you will find that you are justifying various levels of sin in terms of attitudes and actions in your life. And it will seem purely justifiable. Why? Because life is about you or about me. Satan wants us to think that it's all about us. And when we think it's all about us, we become easy targets for his attacks. Something else in terms of lies that we believe. Here's a lie that we believe. God's word is restrictive. It's out of date. It's old-fashioned. And Satan wants you to think that the word of God is restricting you from blessings that you could otherwise enjoy. I think that is exactly what he's saying to Eve in this story. We think with me of it in this way. Think of God's truth and God's word as road signs. Okay, think of it as road signs, as streetlights, signals. Okay? Think of it that way with me for a moment. With the thought that Satan wants me to think that God's standards and rules are restrictive and limit joy and happiness in my life. Okay? How many of you, when you see a speed limit sign, you just, you lift your eyes to heaven and you say, God, thank you for speed limit signs. Okay? How many of you do that? Okay, I didn't think so. All right? We, we don't typically look at speed limit signs and say, I am so grateful for them. All right, how many of you, when you were late for an appointment, got to a traffic light and it turned yellow and you said, God, thank you for stopping me right here so that as I'm getting to my appointment late, I have time to reflect on you and pray. Okay? Now, you know what? You resent it because you think of it as restrictive. Right? All those signs that limit behavior. We look at them and we think they are all restrictions on what I could be doing, but I'm not able to do Okay, and if the truth be told, okay, uh, cell phone laws, how many of you love those babies? Okay, oh, some of you do, okay, good. We have two spiritual people in the church. 
You can come up and pray with them afterwards if you want to, okay? Um, let me ask you this question. Why are there speed limit laws? Why? Oh, no, they're not there to keep you safe. That's not why. You know why they're there? Because you and I inherently are so incredibly selfish that we would hazard the lives of others to get what we need to get when we want to get there. That's why there's speed limit signs. You know why? People can't be trusted. Here's the fascinating thing. Okay? Speed limit signs make the roads safe. They make it somewhat tolerable. Although, three Saturday mornings ago, I was in my, uh, on my vehicle, let's say it that way, going down Route 57. I was coming to the light, traffic light at 519 and 57. I am about 30 feet from the intersection. And it is clearly green. I'll tell you how I know that, okay? Because some of you are thinking, well, you could misread it. And I, a car went through. There was no traffic. It's early in the morning, no traffic. A car went through that light at full speed, through a red light. I mean, I locked up. I was like, oh my word. Got to the next traffic light at Strikers Road. You know what I did? I waved the car up that was behind me and I said, was that me? Like, did I misread that light because I'm capable of doing stuff like that? And it was a lady driver. She said, no offense. Okay. She said, no. She said, that light was, our light was dead green. She said, I thought you were gone. Are you thankful for those street signs, okay, that restrict your behavior? Here's the bottom line. The street signs are what make the roads safe. Are they restrictive? Yes. They mean that sometimes I can't get to an appointment on time when I left late. Okay, stop lights are a helpful thing, and when people ignore them, the consequences can be absolutely deadly. Those signs bring some level of protection and assurance. They give freedom. They make the roads safe but what do we do? We tend to ignore them. We tend to not like them. We don't embrace them because we look at them as restrictions on our freedom. Folks, do you understand how the evil one does that with all of the directives of God? He wants us to see the restrictions as restrictive rather than as paths to freedom and a life that brings abundant joy and happiness in the well-defined context of biblical principles. Because the truth of God's word really doesn't function as much as the signs as it does as the guardrails of life that keep us from driving in places where things would become hazardous and incredibly unsafe. They protect us. And while Satan wants us to see God's word as respective, here's what Jesus said. If you know the truth, what's the truth going to do? It's going to set you free. If you abide by the, 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 the signs and the various laws that apply to activity inside of your car, it is likely that you will live longer. It's not restrictive. It's a protection. And when God's Word speaks to specific areas in our lives, and young people, I hope you hear me this morning. Those boundaries that are established in the Word of God are for your protection and benefit. I would not, I'm going to tell you this right now, I would not like living in a country where people could do whatever they want to do on the roads. I've been in that country. All right, it's India. Okay, it is scary to drive in a place where there are no well-defined boundaries and where there are no consequences for your behavior. It is downright scary. And it causes a lot 
of destruction. God in His grace and mercy has given for you, has established for you, fences, boundaries, guardrails, street signs, stoplights in your life. And the evil one wants you to look at them and say, run that light, ignore that sign, drive over that guardrail. That's what he wants you to think. That God is inherently restricted. That is exactly what he's saying to Eve and Adam in the garden. He wants you to think that following his word, the word of God, will lead to less happiness than if you stepped outside. And I'm going I'm to tell you this. As someone who turns 50 in three weeks, okay, I beg to differ with the evil one in this regard. I beg to differ. I have been in Christ for 44 years. I thank God. Because here's the thing I don't know. I don't know how many stupid decisions I would have made if it were not for the Spirit of God and the Word of God in my life. I don't know. I'm fairly certain I wouldn't be married today. Not because of her, but because of me. I'm incredibly stupid and self-centered and stubborn. I could go on and on. And so could some of you. You probably say, oh, I can add to that. Though you forgot this. Okay. Uh, believe it, I don't need your help, man. I look in the mirror and I see. Well, I appreciate your help, actually, and be honest. But here, I think, where would I be if it wasn't for the Word of God and the Spirit of God speaking into my life? I mean, I know the stupid things I'm prone to do apart from God. And I just, I beg of you young people in our church to heed the signs that the Spirit of God causes to flash in your life. It is not to restrict your behavior. It is not to limit your happiness. It is to give you the most abundant joy that you could ever want to have in your life. I thank God every time I have the privilege of doing a wedding for a young couple that I know has maintained purity. You know why? Because I know that their life will not be hazarded by past mistakes, and anyone who has made those mistakes will tell you that that is true. You can do this. Start reading secular literature today about what's happening in marriages, okay, where there have been many past encounters, and now with the rise of Facebook, 60 to 65% of divorces now, lawyers are saying, are being caused at some level, always in the complaint, is something listed about the internet or about something like social networking. Now, I'm not saying those things are wrong. Okay, but most of that is flying on past encounters that people have had in their life that today are destroying their heart. So I beg of you young people to not think of God's word as restrictive. And if you are older and messing with God's standards, I beg of you to heed the warning signs that God has brought in terms of purity, in terms of what you see with your eyes. Because you, here's what Satan wants you to think. Oh, you, you can contain the consequences of sin in your life. That's what he, he wants Eve to think. You won't surely die. The consequences will not be nearly as bad as they appear to be. But they are. And they bring deep devastation. Look, you don't have to come into the Christian church to find out that sin has devastating consequences. You can go out into the secular world and find plenty of it yourself. Sad thing is, our world is making TV shows out of it. You know what they call them? Reality shows. Because the horror that we laugh at is truly devastating. It's not funny. And it's not entertaining. And it's very sad when it is in the culture that you and I live in. It is very, very sad. 
Because I think what the evil one has done is sold us the last lie that I'm going to list this morning. And by the way, I, I could go on with this. What he wants you to think is this. The consequences of your sin will not be that serious. He seeks to downplay the effects of indiscretions in our life, causing us to think that the effects of sin can be contained, neatly packaged. He does it through various footholds, like unforgiveness, where Paul strikes out to the church in 2 Corinthians and says, we are not ignorant of the evil one's schemes. If you harbor unforgiveness in your heart, he will find a place to work, and it will run rampant and contaminate your life. Marital disharmony and affection, 1 Corinthians 7, 5. Come together again in closeness in your marriage, physically, so that Satan will not tempt you, Ephesians 4, 26. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. If you do, you will give Satan a foothold. You will give him a base of operation in your life, 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 3. And I'll read you this one. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. That is the will of Father. That you would heed the signs that He places along the road of your life. His will, His desire for you. That you would avoid sexual immorality and that each of you would learn how to control your body in a way that is honorable and holy. Not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. And that in this matter no one defraud his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish such sins. Folks, do you see what he's saying? The consequences cannot be avoided. As we have already told you and warned you, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Whoever rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. Folks, here's what God does. By His Spirit and by His words, He flies in the face of the lies of the evil one in and through your life and through your heart. He flies in the face of the lies with the Spirit of truth, who is the Spirit that the Word of God says sets you free. And so I beg of you, I beg of you to be responsive to the Spirit of God because the evil one is out there. His main goal is to spread misinformation through deceit and through teaching. He has things he wants you to believe and when you believe them, they will bring absolute devastation and destruction into your life. How do we defeat the lies of the evil one? And this is my closing thought. Simply this. Know the truth. Know the truth. Neil Anderson says this. He says, freedom from spiritual conflicts and bondage is not a power encounter, but a truth encounter. Freedom from the lies of the evil one is not about power and having big flashes. It's about truth. And it's why in Ephesians 6, we are told, take up the sword of the Spirit. Memorize the Word of God. Now, with that in mind, in your bulletins, you found a card that looks like this. I have extras of these cards. Okay? Here, here's my desire this morning as we close. It is this. It is that you would take segments of the Word of God and memorize them because where there is truth, there is liberty. Jesus said to His disciples, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. I am confident of this. There are people sitting in our church who are enslaved to habits that are stealing joy in your life. There are habits in the lives of some within our church family, I'm confident in a group this size, that are stealing the joy and glory of God from your life. And you may be abiding there because you think there is no freedom. Okay, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4, I would beg of you to memorize this verse. 
For everyone who knows Christ, you dear children, are from God and have overcome them. Go read the context. You have overcome them because greater is the one that is in you than the one who is in the world. I'm going to tell you, I have to re-memorize that verse because I know it in the King James Version. Okay? But I'm going to beg of you, take up this sword, this dagger, and do damage to the lives of the evil one that wants you to think that you can sin without consequence and that when you sin, you can contain the consequences of sin in your life. Know the truth. Here's the truth, and i just give you a couple thoughts real quickly. His influence is limited by God. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13. No temptation is seized upon you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out. He will post a sign on the road of your life that will give you an exit ramp so that you do not need to fall into sin. Okay, He will put up detour signs. He will put up caution flashers in your life by the work of the Spirit to protect you and to guide you away from the evil one. But you must respond. All right, here, here's, here's I think what I learned from that verse. Okay, Satan is, as we looked at last week, a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But he is a tethered lion. He is a tethered lion. He does not have reckless and free abandon in your life if you were a Christian. Whatever temptation he is bringing into your life, God has already made a way of escape so that you do not have to say, I had to fall, I couldn't resist. Satan wants you to think you can't. And God wants you to look to him from the ends of the earth and be saved. That's what God wants. The other thought that I think emerges out of the text we've looked at this morning is this. The defeat of the evil one is certain. Okay, you get back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. You know what it says? It says to Satan, these thoughts. It says, the heel of the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Okay, the heel of the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. I find it glorious when I look at Luke chapter 10. Jesus sends his disciples out to begin to proclaim the inbreaking of the kingdom of God with the demonstration of signs and wonders and power, demonstrating that Christ and his kingdom is about to begin. Luke chapter 10, they go out and as they're doing their work, they come back and Jesus looks at them and here's what he says. He says, while you were out, I saw Satan falling from heaven. I saw him as you went out and did battle against the powers of darkness. I saw him beginning to fall. I saw the heel lifted, ready to strike his head. Through the cross of Jesus Christ, the heel of the Redeemer, the seed of Eve, crushes the head of the serpent and the power of sin can then be broken in the lives of everyone who believes. That is the glorious truth of the gospel. The deceiver who sought to bring down and bring destruction has been dealt a death blow by Christ. And I thought of these words as we were singing our last song. Revelation 12 and verse 10. It says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now have come the salvation and power and kingdom of God and the authority of His Christ. Folks, just you know, when I hear that, you know what I sense? I sense a rising up in my heart by the Spirit of a desire to see thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what I sense in my heart. 
that one day he will reign victorious over all sin and all devastation and all destruction. Now have come the salvation, the power and the ki- of the kingdom of God and the authority of His Christ for the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before God, day, before God day and night has been cast down and they overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, obviously their testimony of faith in Christ. And as a result, they did not love their lives. Life wasn't about them so much as to shrink from death. Therefore, Rejoice, you heavens, and all who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. But folks, here's the promise I leave you with this morning. He is formidable. He is active. He is diligent. He is persistent. He is like a terrorist, spiritually. But he has already received the death blow and we speak in terms of World War II, here's the way it is. D-Day has happened. Okay, the power of the evil one has been broken. What are we in now? We're in the mop-up operation. Okay, we're working towards V-Day. When the final outworking of the work of Jesus is revealed in the lives of his children, would it not be glorious if the world that lives around Warren County saw people who were beginning to live out the power of the kingdom of our God and of His Christ, and saw the power of sin in our lives being defeated, saw young people, young people in our church, who are so committed to righteousness and to the cause of Christ, that they stand and say, Lord, I want to be part of what you were doing. Because I know that the evil one has already received the death blow to his head. Yes, the heel of the sun was bruised, but the head of the evil one was crushed, and his death therefore is certain. That is the kind of trauma that the Savior inflicted against him. We should be people of hope because his defeat is certain. 1 John 3, 8 says this, the Son of God appeared that he might destroy the works of the devil. Romans 16, verse 20, and the God of all peace shall soon crush Satan under your feet. Truth known and practiced defeats the power of the evil one. Therefore, be doers of the word. And not merely hearers, not merely people who know the Word of God, but people that put it into practice in every decision of our lives. Young people, Satan wants to take you out. He wants to steal the joy that you're enjoying right now in your heart as you listen to His truth and know that in Jesus there is hope for you. He wants to steal that from you. And typically in our generation, he will do it through the realm of sexuality in some way or another. He wants you to stand and fight. He wants you to take the sword of the Spirit that says, pursue purity for the honor and glory of God. For some of us, I think we have to ask ourselves this question. What lie of the evil one am I believing today that I need to do damage to diligently for the glory of God? Is it thinking that life is about my happiness, therefore I can trash everybody else around me and my commitments around me so that I can do what I want to do? Is it thinking that God's word, rather than providing safety in your life, is actually bringing restriction in your life? When Jesus says, if you know it, it will set you free. Is it thinking that the consequences of the sin that you're harboring in your life will not be that serious? Thinking that the effects of it cannot be, can be contained when the word of God says, what you sow, you will reap. What lie are you believing that you need to destroy? 
And perhaps this morning, you're here and you don't know Christ. And if that's the case, I think that a lot of what I said may sound very strange to you. And I understand. It can sound foreign. It can sound like, wait, you really believe this stuff? About God, about Satan, about the evil one? You really believe? And my honest answer from my heart is, yeah, I do. I do. And I pray today that God would allow you, give you the gift of faith to believe that Jesus Christ can bring you freedom from sin. That he can give you a happiness that I'm going to guarantee you this. The happiness that Satan offered was very short-lived. It's the way it is with sin. Because God didn't create you for that. He created for you for life and joy and happiness and peace. Not for immorality. But to live truth. And when you live that truth and, and fulfill the God-given purposes that he has, he has written in his word, you will find that there is a joy in your life that the Bible says is indescribable and full of glory. And what Satan wants to say is restrictive. But Jesus says, if you follow this, this will set you free. If you've never trusted Christ, perhaps as you sit here this morning, you say, Pastor Tim, what I feel today is a load of condemnation. I've heard the voice of the evil one. I have responded to his call. I have dabbled in immorality and I'm wondering if I can be forgiven. And for you, I want to say there is hope. You see, Adam and Eve were not destroyed by God. They were redeemed by God. Through the sacrifice of lambs that pictured the coming of Jesus, a covering for them and their shame was provided. And for you on the cross of Christ, a covering for your sin was provided. Yea, even a complete obliteration of it and its effect. Oh, he's a powerful foe. But he is no challenge to the Savior. He is no challenge. And so folks, here's what I want you to do. I want you to see him clearly. Respect him. Do not fear him. And if you don't know Christ, flee to Him. If you're wrestling with sin in your life as a brother or sister in Christ or as a young person, flee to Him. Yield to the road signs that God is flashing before your face through whoever He is using. Don't resist. Listen. Listen. Because if you live by the truth of God, that truth will set you free. And when you're free, here's what happens. You will experience a joy in your life that you have never known or that you have been missing for a long time. Let's bow together in prayer this morning. Father.